I got a new book. You, Father Harrison, <laughs> with over 10,000 books in your library. Not 10,000. In this fictional scenario, got a new book. Let me say I am shocked. I am surprised. I, I almost fell over in my seat at the news that you, Father Harrison, got a new book. I, okay, first 1,700. <laughs> how many books, do you know how many books you have, actually? Yeah. Is it 1,700? Yeah. Have I never shown you a picture of my library? <laughs> I knew it was big, but, like, you have to understand, in my mind, I picked 10,000 as a ridiculous number, and you almost doubled my ridiculous number, yeah. and that brings great joy to my soul. No, I said seven, 1,700, not 17,000. Okay, good. Oh my God. Also, I believed you when you when I thought you said seventeen thousand. Whatever. You yeah. know, I said seventeen hundred. Anyway. But as you said to to producer Nick beforehand, you're you can't count. It's true. Counting is not my strong point. <laughs> I was a ter I was terrible at math, terrible at science. I was very much a uh, English lit history guy. But that all being said, I assume you're excited about this new book you got. Yeah. So I just. I need to talk about it because it's kind of right up. It's many things coming for me at once. It's uh, there's a new book released by Ignatius Press. It's an anthology of Balthazar's texts on the spiritual exercises by Saint Ignatius. Ooh! So it's really cool for three reasons. First, the editor, uh, who wrote an amazing introduction to the book, is Father Jacques Servet, who runs the Casa Balthazar in Rome. And I know, I know, if I have a few friends who wait. There's a a, a castle. Casa. Balthazar has a castle. Casa. Oh, Casa. I thought there was like house. Balthazar Castle, which is real exciting. Let's just suspect back here for a second. What okay. is, what is God's language? It is Italian. And what is the word casa? Which language is that from? Italian. So you didn't recognize an Italian word. I guess I didn't because I was excited about the idea. So are you truly Italian? No, no, no. I was excited about the idea that Balthazar had a castle because castles are awesome. And I just imagined like Balthazar <laughs> sitting in like armor on a throne, just doing theology, waving a sword around. And that made me happy. But House of Balthazar, that's fine too. You obviously have not read Raise the Bastions by Balthazar then. No, I've read almost zero Balthazar to be honest. <gasps> You got to change that. Um, the occasional article, but that's about it. Okay. Read Theology and Spirituality first. Um, okay. Anyway. Anyways. <laughs> so Father Jacques Survey is the head of the Casa Balthazar, which is a really interesting thing. Uh, it, it was founded actually by Cardinal Ratzinger, of all people, uh, to help further the thought of Balthazar. He wanted to do it in a place of like that theology bears fruit in the spiritual life. So it became a place of real discernment for men. So a lot of these people who've gone to it have become Jesuits, diocesan priests, join other orders, entered into marriage, etc. Um, oh, but it's a it's a two year program usually. So yeah, I have a few friends who've done it. And I went there for a couple of weeks. They had a summer program. So I went there for a couple of weeks uh, to do some studying on C.S. Lewis with them. And it was really awesome. And Father Jacques Survey is an incredibly holy man who I have nothing but the highest esteem for. So he's the mm -hmm. editor, so I was really excited to see that. It's Balthazar, so good Which, enough right of course, there. Right. And the spiritual exercises by St. Ignatius are some, is something I'm, I, I, I have a deep fondness for, partially because I've, I've helped lead them now. I've taken them myself, and I am starting to see more and more like the exercises are what we need today for the church. One of our very first episodes was us stumbling through the rules for discernment from the spiritual exercises. 
Well, I mean, I was stumbling. You were you were holding the episode up <laughs> with your strength and knowledge, of course. Uh, but and uh, so with the exercises, for those who don't know it, there's two there's two states of election in the exercises. The first is the general state of election, which is the election to love, that you encounter God's life giving love that saves you from hell and damnation, and that God these are the things God does to save you, and that's the first experience of the exercises. The second experience is the state of election. God elects me to a particular state. Either he elects me to follow him by the life of the councils, or he doesn't elect me, and I go and get married. Okay, so just for people who don't know what spiritual exercises are, briefly, what are they? Elevator pitch. Uh, They were developed by St. Ignatius as a means for people to concretely encounter Christ in prayer so that they can encounter his love, come to a conversion through that, and thereby know their vocation. And this is normally done through a 30-day silent retreat, right? That's right. But it's not the only thing. It's not the only, it's thing, not the only way. Right. There's right. the eight-day retreat, which is the norm, and it's a bit more adaptable to people's needs as they're going through the retreat. There is the annotation 19, which allows you to do it. It's the exercises for day-to-day life, which mm. allows for people who cannot get away for an eight-day retreat to do it over the course of time. Um, and there's just a few other different ways. But I've been reading this, and it's just been getting me to ponder... Have you done the exercises? I did an eight-day silent retreats, but it wasn't based specifically around the exercises. Okay. I, I, I used some of them, so it was, it was loosely based on the exercises. Okay. So okay. I'm familiar with them. I haven't like engaged in them in a complete and total way. Yeah, no, I, I've, yeah I've done an eight-day yeah. exercises. Um, but I've been pondering this more and more, and I'm like, we need to, like, there has to be a way to translate some of what Ignatius does in his exercises into a so that people because i think we we notice as priests a lot of people have not even encountered god's love yeah even people go to church every sunday yeah is there a way to adapt the exercises to answer that Mm. so that you could do like a 24-hour retreat for people or a six-week program or something to adapt part of the exercises into a place where people can come to that, at least that that first stage of encountering his love. Yeah. So that's been the fruit of that. I mean, there's an also, I'm, I'm, I'm getting on a big Ignatius kick again, so you might hear about it in the next couple of weeks on the podcast. No, I love it. You know who also loves it? Producer Nick. He's a big old fan of Ignatian stuff. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. It's just, it's awesome stuff. It's, it's because it's about the objective call and it really kind of takes us out of our subje- overly subjective way of thinking about discernment. What is, what, what do I want to do with my life? No, it's not a, unless you're asking that question of what does God want to do with my life, then you're not asking the right question. And Ignatius just like knocks that through you. He's like, get with it, stupid. It's about God. It's about God. Think about God first. Yeah. And what does he want? And to realize that God is not going to destroy you in his election. Mm. Well, that's why the love comes first. Exactly, right? So, yeah, it's just it's awesome stuff. And so this is my little spiritual reading now for my holy hour in the morning. And it's just been little aphorisms or bits of text from different books that he's written. And it's making me think I have to read Balthazar's Christian State of Life again because it's been a while. Mm-hmm. So you might get more stuff on discernment again. Yeah, I think we can... The more we talk about discernment, the better, I think. Yeah, cool. So I'm Father Harrison. I'm Father Anthony... And after that incredibly long banter from me, welcome to Clerically Speaking. <laughs> that was eight minutes. I was like, oh, wow, that was, I was talking. For- if, if you're a person, a regular old person, lay person, living the Christian life, and you're like, I want to read one saint that will help me grow spiritually in the regular day-to-day world. And if you're not going to read who's the guy who wrote 
Introduction to the Devout Life. Francis de Sales. Francis de Sales, but I would say even more so than him, St. Ignatius. And Ignatian spirituality, I think, is so, so helpful for people yeah. living regular old secular life, but trying to do it in a holy way. Yep, absolutely. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I want to talk about my one of my new favorite podcasts. Cool. So you've been doing this for a little while. This is CNA Newsroom. So Catholic News Agency, which is a incredibly reputable, fair, accurate news source for all things Catholic. They do this podcast called CNA Newsroom. And so they have regular episodes that kind of give you stories about what's going on in the church. During Lent, they're doing this fun sort of thing where they were talking about each week something you probably gave up for Lent. So I remember one of their episodes was about beer and how the Catholic tradition relates to beer, someone who went on a beer fast, all exciting stuff. But in my opinion, my humble opinion, which is also always correct, the best part of CNA Newsroom is the bonus episodes where you have Mm -hmm. Ed Condon and Mm -hmm. J.D. Flynn talking about whatever else is going on in the church. And it's just really refreshing to have two very knowledgeable people Mm -hmm. talk about things in a very clear way, even when they get passionate, which is fun too. But they talk about it in a clear way, uh, and I just really respect and trust their opinion on things and their analysis of things. So check out CNA Newsroom. Like, legit, they're very good. So I'll say that one. And also under bonus episode two, Carl Bunderson shows up on there as well. Right. And Carl, I mean, as much as I... not on Twitter yet. He's not on Twitter yet, no. But to be honest, that keeps the purity of Carl. Um, I know. And as much as I love Ed and JD, the real star of any show is is Carl. And if you don't know what I mean, you just got to listen to them because they're great. So check out the bonus episodes and all the episodes. Subscribe to them. So I'll say that, since I'm plugging podcasts... Because uh, I, I, you know, with seven parishes and living an hour away from a lot of uh, family, I drive all the time. Mm-hmm. So the other one that I think is maybe the most important Catholic podcast right now, I think I mentioned before, is Every Knee Shall Bow. It's a practical podcast about how to evangelize. So if you're listening to the Great Clerically Speaking podcast right now, and you think to yourself, I'm Catholic, but I've never talked to anyone about Jesus before, which is a lot of people. Go check out Every Knee Shall Bow. And then that's good. That's enough plugs because cool. really we want you to just listen to us because we're the best. There is a great um, story about St. Thomas Aquinas that at the end of his, towards the end of his life, as he was praying in the chapel one day, was kneeling, bending the knee every, you know, knee, uh, in front of the <laughs> tabernacle when the Lord said to him, Thomas, you've written greatly of me. What do you want of me? And Thomas said, only you, Lord. And at which point he said, burn all my writings because everything is straw. Mm-hmm. St. Thomas also bent the knee then because every knee shall bow. Exactly. In the Summa Tweetologica. <laughs> Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica.
that was I loved it because it was so needlessly complicated. <laughs> no. All you need to do was say, by the way, Tom is prayed as well. His uh, knees were bowed. I know. I just felt like going more into it. <laughs> I know. I loved it. What, what, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? All right. What? So the Summa Theologica with St. Thomas Aquinas' summary of theology and the Summa Tweetologica is our summary of, th- summary of things we found interesting on Twitter. So the first up is actually a double post because these two Whoa. people both asked about this. So one was from Daniel, Daniel Glaze. D underscore glaze. Hey, Catholics, here's a question. I've wondered and want your opinion. How much weight is a spiritual director supposed to have on the decisions of one's life? Mm. And then I'm guessing seeing this discussion, Haley Stewart, who, by the way, uh, seeing her picture with her and her husband and Father Dan. Oh, right. Yeah. Did you see so that picture? If you're not, if you're not on Twitter, um, Father Dan, our friend, he was he's been on two of our episodes before. He's the guy with the really awesome voice you've heard on our shows before. Uh, he he's he's a tall priest. He's a he's very, a big lad. He's a he's a large lad. And yes. apparently, um, the the Haley and her husband they are Hobbit people. They are super tiny. I was so like, I, 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 yeah, I was like, wow, Haley looks a little short. But I think that's also Father Dan is such a large guy. He makes everyone look short. Yeah, yeah, but they looked real short. They, they did in that picture. Bitsy. I don't know if it was the angling or anything, but it was it was great. <laughs> Anyways, Haley, sorry, Haley. I just I was it was a moment to just ask yeah. about that. She asked, "How do you find a spiritual director? How does it work? Give me this that spiritual direction." So uh, just very interesting because I think it's something that always comes up. So I thought this is a good opportunity for spiritual direction one hundred and one. So I'll throw out a few tips. You can throw out a few tips. There's more so to say. Good. We'll probably actually do a whole episode on this one day because I think it's something that's really important. Okay. Uh, tip number one. If you're going for spiritual direction, have a purpose and clear intent in mind. If it's, well, everyone else does it, so I think I should do it too, is not a good enough reason. Um, you have to have a clear intent in mind. Secondly, it doesn't always have to be a priest. Um, you don't... Because there's only so many priests, we can only do so much. I've been getting, I've gotten a few requests on Twitter the last couple of months, and I was going to do one, but I, I, I couldn't because of my extra duties now. But um, so there's always lay people too who can maybe help you with that. I know some lay people or consecrated lay people, especially um, who have a very deep prayer life, would be able to uh, avail you of that. Uh, and I, I think spiritual direction often comes up for people when they are thinking about vocation stuff. It's mm-hmm. definitely important. Big life choices try and just go closer to god and and realize it and knowing where your weaknesses are and trying to figure out how to do things for your strength and to have the humility and you need to have the humility of heart to be willing to be challenged right because you know i don't know about you if you've done spiritual direction but like when i do spiritual direction i've had some people would be like they're kind of just not changing over a year and actually i've actually had to say to a couple people i'm like we're done uh-huh. <laughs> right because i'm like you're not, you're not doing the work so it's not you know come back to me when you're doing the work Mm-hmm. because you're not so we have to i have to move on or whatever um when daniel asked that question about like how much should a spirit director have influence on one's life decisions my answer like i really think it should be essentially zero in the sense of in the sense of they can't tell you what to do in in terms of big life i can't say if let's say you came to let's say you were 17 year old anthony coming in to see mm-hmm. me uh thinking about being a priest right I can't say you need to go to seminary. 
I need to, for me, the way I at least see spiritual direction is I need to bring you to a place to come. You need to have the freedom of a discussion. And it's my job to guide your heart to come to hear God's election for you. Right. And uh, to make a decision on that. I mean, I can be strong and say, listen, God's saying this. What, what's what's going on? Why aren't you, mm-hmm, why are you afraid mm-hmm. of that? But right. I can't say go to seminary, right? Or buy that house or take this job. Like in the yeah. end, those are prudential, de- like not the vocation stuff, but a lot of the prudential decisions are up to you. It's, it's the spiritual director's job is to open up a space of freedom. Yes. First of all, do you need a spiritual director? I agree with what you said. Yeah. Um, if you work for the church, in any kind of ministry, especially, you should have a spiritual director. If you're yeah. any kind of minister in the church, if you're uh, running evangelization, if you're running uh, CCD, um, if you are doing active ministry in the church, not necessarily if like you're an altar server or a Eucharistic minister, but if you're visiting the, uh, the sick, maybe, if you're doing prison ministry, ministry for the church, I think you should have a spiritual director. That's an easy yes. Discerning something in your life, something big, Yes. Feeling very confused in the spiritual life. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, like I feel like I'm going nowhere. I'm trying. I don't know what's going on. All those are good reasons to see a spiritual director. You may continue to see a spiritual director on. You may decide, you know what? I don't need to do this anymore. That can happen. You may meet every two weeks. You might meet once a month. That's mm-hmm. between your spiritual director. Okay. How to find a spiritual director? Uh, two pieces of advice. One, if you're going to confession to a priest pretty often and you trust that priest, like, then that's someone you should ask. Uh, Another piece of advice, if you see a priest and you like the way he says mass, maybe ask that priest to be your spiritual director. But to be honest, finding a spiritual director, as silly as it sounds, is a lot like dating. You just have to go on the dates. So just ask. Ask priests. So it's like science. Exactly, like science. It's like we discussed two episodes ago um, in in all clarity. Uh, So yeah, so first of all, never be afraid to ask. It's the priest's job to say no, not for you to say no for him before you even ask. Mm -hmm. And then meet with a spiritual director. And this is how I do it. If someone wants me to be their spiritual director, um, we discuss what it is. And like you mentioned, this is a way to help you listen to God and to gain freedom in the spiritual life. So maybe that means you're struggling with scrupulosity. Mm-hmm. That If you're struggling with scrupulosity, definitely get a spiritual director. Um, maybe it means you have some severe misunderstandings about the spiritual life. Okay, good. Work on that with the spiritual director. Then that spiritual director helps you listen to the Holy Spirit. So like you said, the spiritual director can't do jack if you're not praying. Right. Now, you might have a bad week or a bad month. Yep. Fine. But if you're just never praying, then there's nothing the spiritual director can do for you. Right? Exactly. We, we, we will definitely do an episode on this, I think. Because, yeah. because we there, could definitely go on a lot. There's a lot there. When I, someone wants to meet, it seems like you have a good reason. I say this. Okay, let's meet for four weeks. No matter what, we're going to meet four different times. Whether you love it or hate it, we're meeting four different times. Yeah. And on that fifth time, we're going to discuss whether or not this is working. Yep. And if it's not working... It's okay. Yeah. I'll say too, like with that, like I will add like to people, like you have a freedom here. Um, yes. It's your, like I always say to them, you have a few responsibilities. It's your job to arrange the appointments because if this is something you need or don't need it for a month or whatever, that's fine. Uh, and you have the freedom to say, this isn't working for me. And I have the freedom to say that too. Yeah. Right. I have the freedom to say, do you what? This relationship, just for whatever reason, I just don't think I can help you. 
and that's yeah. fine and don't and don't take it like a rejection or anything it's just sometimes we might not have the skills or personalities just don't work in such a way that we're gonna be able to help you and that's yeah. okay and mm-hmm. that's okay also while like uh to be honest i'm okay with doing spiritual direction uh, i'm sure father harrison would be good if if you can get if in the perfect world i say go see an old priest i think old priests who have been praying and dealing with this stuff for a long time and are experts in it that's the best way you can go i mean yeah. i think i can be helpful for a lot of people in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um but i mean find an old holy priest absolutely <laughs> go find a religious maybe absolutely. there's um religious who live you know yeah. i i see a religious priest um, we all hope that our priests are religious, but you know what yes, I mean. Yes, 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 okay, yes. man, we could talk about this. We, we will have to do an episode on this. Uh, okay, I guess I'll pick a tweet. Um, this is from Father Ryan Hildebrand, at Father Hildebrand. He says, Brother Priests, in all capital letters, laws like the one proposed here are part of why I do not hear confessions face-to-face in the confessional. They say I have to report it, but what will I report? A nameless voice told me. So what he's referring to is that I think in California, there's a piece of legislation that's making its way through the state Senate saying that a priest would have to break the the seal of confession if someone confesses like abuse or something like that or just whatever. And Mm -hmm. it's something that's happening, I think, in Australia as well. And I think it's something we're going to see more and more, Mm -hmm. Uh, not because breaking the seal of confession will actually help in any way, but because people are trying to attack the church. Mm-hmm. So so we've talked about the the pluses and minuses of going screen face before. So I don't want to get into that, but I like Father Ryan's idea here that if you don't go face to face, it's really protecting the priest. Mm-hmm. So even if he were to be, no priest that I have ever met, that I ever know, is ever going to break the seal of confession. Yeah. I think even for like your very mediocre priests, they would never break the seal of confession. Yeah. But if this laws like this were being to enacted and a, and a priest had to testify, if they don't see someone's face, if they're just another voice behind the screen, yeah, then it's even more protection for that priest, which I yeah. think is a good idea. And adding to that, it's um, there is this whole. Um, it can be a way for even like legislation to entrap priests right if you right. can do it face to face did you see this person i can't say or no no recollection or whatever yeah but then they have videotape of the person going into the confessional yeah right suddenly they say but you're lying to us i'm like i can't say anything right so they can use the law against us to mm-hmm. forcefully entrap us and that's not okay but if it's behind a screen then there is no issue i and i this is my big issue with face to face and i'm starting to realize it more because it creates a conversational tone, it removes the ability to. Um, we talked a little bit about this on Catching Foxes, didn't we? Uh, yeah, and we. Yeah. I think we've talked about it on here like, too. Yeah, we've talked. We talked about it. It, it. It's one of those circling themes. Um, but we deal with it like. And the other problem is, is that when you're talking to the person, and because it gets more conversational, you start talking about details that actually have nothing to do with the confession. Yeah. Right. Like, oh, can you be a lector next week or whatever? But then you're walking around this person <laughs> and you're like, did I talk to him about this in the confessional? Because if I did, yeah. I can't talk about it. Wait, what did I talk about? So then you start hitting these these areas where you're just like, and, and you start doubting yourself and you're getting scared because I'm like, I can't break the seal, even about things that are nothing to do with confession. And it, what's said in the seal stays in the seal. And yep. 
that is where it gets really hard. And so the format of face to face makes it a lot more, it makes it a lot harder to discern and to, that I, I say this in the confessional? I think like for me, thankfully there's been a couple times where I recognized I almost wanted to say something, but God gave me the grace to say, shut up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've which would be really amazing. It like, would be really good. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Okay, so, so the 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 rule of thumb, though, just in case you're getting all nervous about yeah. what your priest thinks, you can always ask for confession, mm-hmm. and if face to face is offered, you can go. So don't mm-hmm. stress. Right. And if you see a priest in an airport and you need to go to confession, ask him. Yeah. Okay. So don't so don't let this conversation keep you from going to confession. Or you're at large events, right? It gets hard to right. set things up to make big the conferences, and, yeah. youth, youth events. Conferences, yeah. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about that. We're just saying, in particular, for these situations, okay? So calm yourself, go to confession, get that grace, get that forgiveness. Yeah. Cool. All right, uh, next one, since we mentioned the CNA podcast earlier. So today was the day that Archbishop uh, Gregory was installed as Archbishop of Washington. Which was last week when you're listening to this. Right, but recording today, so. Uh, JD has a really good thread on... Because there's a lot of controversy about why Cardinal Mahoney was at the installation. For people who don't know, who is what's what, why does this matter? Why does it matter that Cardinal Mahoney, Mahoney was at the installation? So he was the Archbishop of L.A. for many years during the troubles in L.A. and um, Gomez informed Mahoney that he would no longer have any administrative or public duties in the archdiocese due to the way he handled some of the abuse stuff in the diocese. Mm-hmm. And so people are wondering, like, well, then why is he at this thing? But essentially, though, Gomez did say that he's still a priest in good standing and that right now, as it stands, there is there is nothing stopping him from exercising ministry. Plus, when you're a cardinal in the church, you can go anywhere you want. That's part. It's actually one of the rights of being a cardinal is you don't need to inform people. I'm coming to your diocese. Here's my letter. Like, you just go. Um mm-hmm. But he also makes a really interesting point about how the new Pope's new legislation around abuse and hiding of stuff that Mahoney can very easily be tried canonically under the new law. And we, ha- we just have to wait and see. Because if that happens, then we, can, we might have to, then it could address can Mahoney be at anything? Because he may not be laicized, but he may be restricted from performing public stuff in the church from now on. So this is a very interesting thread. Uh, and I encourage people to look it up um, if it's been a week now since then, but go find it. Uh, and it was a really well thought out thing about what is the law right now and why is it that Mahoney was there? And that essentially being just, said, yes. isn't it stupid that he was there? Like, isn't this a bad look? Like, why are we so bad at optics? We're especially, like, okay, especially yes, considering yes. What ha- what's yeah. been going on in Washington with war. Exactly. And sure, there's a lot of details and a lot of nuance, but people don't know that. Right. All they know is that world dropped the ball, and then this guy who dropped the ball is at the installation of the new guy, and just any bit of common sense among any of the players, even though you have rights, even though blah, 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 yeah, blah, blah. Yeah. Why are we constantly so bad at things like this that are so simple? Yeah. Like, it's a complete lack of understanding on part of the Cardinal. On part, like, did no one pull him aside and say, maybe this isn't good for you to go to 
maybe you need to step aside for the good of the and church right here's now. the thing i mean we don't know maybe someone did and he went anyways right in which case what a, i mean uh okay yeah who i don't want to get all fired yeah up. i know so I know. who knows but like i agree i agree everyone was... is getting angry about this i i'm right there with you like yeah like can we just can we just <sighs> i want everyone to be holy but maybe at least as a first step we can stop being so damn stupid like maybe as a church we can do that first at the very least <laughs> at the very minimum all right uh okay sorry yeah. all right you got one more i guess so um <laughs> yeah let's get another one that will get me all fired up this is from hot dish at real quick once underscore he says, I wonder how many more vocation we, we'd have if, without changing anything else, most Catholic parents simply didn't actively and aggressively discourage their children from considering it. Mm-hmm. How do you think about that? Do you think that's true? Do you think par- most parents discourage? Uh, uh, because I most? think they do. Yeah. Uh, y- yeah, or at least don't act, or at least they're lukewarm about it and don't say anything about it. Mm. I, um, yeah so if you include that I would say most oh no I've yeah. heard stories of parents saying to kids and then they get married because you cannot become a re- priest you cannot become religious because I want grandkids which yeah. is the number one reason they discourage it yeah because those parents are selfish and they don't believe God will make their children happy exactly let me let me get and all what fired kind of, about this. what kind of view of the priesthood do you have yeah yeah so like right. if if I mean this is let's let's be real honest. We're gonna be real honest with that. If you're listening to this and you're a parent, and the thought of your child, your son becoming a priest or religious, or your daughter becoming religious, if that frightens you, or if that worries you, you need to examine your heart. Why would that ever frighten you? Why would that worry you? Why would you not feel joy at someone devoting their life entirely to God? Yeah. Like be real honest. Yeah. Uh, because that's saying deep down that you don't think God can actually make either that God doesn't make you happy or that you don't believe God will make your children happy or that you're too wrapped up in your own plans. There's a lot of stuff that's going on there. So you need to examine that because I mean, I have heard stories of when daughters tell their mothers that they're considering religious life. I have heard stories and more than one of like parents, like chucking rosaries at them and yelling at them and disowning them. I think so often parents like buy into the side, oh no, little Johnny, he likes girls too much. What kind of BS answer is that? If you're That's normal, BS like, because I like girls too much. Exactly. It's insulting to us as well. And like, <laughs> like so the, all that stuff is is horrible. If you're a Catholic parent, you should be encouraging now now yes it can go the opposite way which is also very unhealthy of like you better join the priesthood or else and that's also very bad right and also very selfish but there is not enough encouragement active encouragement for vocations because too many catholics do not actually have god as a center of their life and we deserve the vocation crisis we are in because we are all guilty Priests yeah. are guilty for not encouraging vocations. Families are guilty for not encouraging vocations. We're oh, we're all guilty because we've all winked and nodded at contraception. I know I'm diving into that as well, but that's a reason as well. The contraceptive mindset. We're all guilty. We've all sinned, and we need to change our attitude about vocations. Yeah. So I will also go off. Um, 
first, just a little caveat when I say I like girls too much, I'm not meaning like in the sense of like, you're it not gets creepy Father Harrison. No, no, I mean, <laughs> like in the sense of like, I was just playing with the, because I hear that line all the time yeah. from guys. I like girls too much. Great. So do I, because it's called being a guy. Yeah. Can you deal with that in a healthy way? Yeah. Right. That's what I mean, folks. Just again, caveats or else people are going to be like, well, Father Harrison said this. Yeah. No, 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 no. The idea like, yeah. I like girls so much. And unless I have this physical person as a release, then yes. I, I'll go crazy. Like, that's yes. not what marriage is. Yes. Like, how <laughs> sick is that if that's your idea of marriage? Like, I just can't control myself. I got to get married. Well, I know. Well, this is the other issue, right? We are, so, yeah. we are so sexualized in our culture that we actually, um, that is pretty much the reason people think about choosing marriage. Yeah. I want sex, which is not a mature way because when you start dealing with marriage, once you start having kids and stuff like that, that becomes not that it's not important, but it doesn't become the thing you frequently have as in a marriage as much because kids take you have kids barfing at 3 a.m. in the morning, right? Like you just have all this <laughs> other stuff thrown your way. You're working all the time. Things change in marriage, right? Like because right. it's not all about that. There's so much more because there's such a there's a it's a great way to give of yourself, but there are even more amazing ways to give of yourself. So I was preaching this weekend about the changes in our diocese, and I kind of went off a little bit. It was one of those Holy Spirit. I was telling you, Father Anthony, about this before we were recording. It was one of those Holy Spirit moments for me, and I just kind of went off and I said, "There is a variety of reasons why we because there was a 15 year period in our diocese where we didn't have one ordination, Whew. not one." And I said, there's a whole bunch of reasons for this. But one of it is because we stopped caring about vocations. We stopped caring about priesthood. And when you don't care about the priesthood, you don't care about the mass. Because you can't have a mass with the priest. If you don't care about the mass, you don't care about the Eucharist. If you don't care about the Eucharist, you don't love Jesus and you need to check yourself. Mm-hmm. And I actually, that's, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's more or less what I was getting at with the people. Yeah. And I said, you need to kind of smarten up because you think that because in the end we are treating the church like it's this place where I go to get my my um, my Jesus cookie essentially and <laughs> that or my and it's my Jesus ticket even and it's going to get me into heaven and that's the way it is and I'm going to use the church and get what I want out of it but I'm not going to sacrifice anything because guess what people if you love something you will sacrifice for it and if you're not willing to sacrifice your children for it then you don't love the church and you should get out of it. Or you should at least examine your conscience. Sorry, I got off there a little second. <laughs> I was really happy that you weren't going to back off of that. But okay, good. I, 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 right. I, I got to always qualify these things, right? It's true. It's true. But we, need to smart, okay. we need to smart up about this. Yeah, like, we this need to is, be real honest about it's it. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I'm just tired of it. And, and I think I've been pondering this more and more. And I think the issue, essentially, we got to start afresh. Not the church. It's not like we need a new church or anything. But essentially, we need to replant the seeds. And we need to start all over again because what's been going on for the last 150, 200 years isn't working anymore because mm-hmm. we stopped internalizing the faith. Anyways. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, okay. Let's, all right. Let's do the, do the let's, let's go something Patreon fun. Thing. Let's go to Patreon pontifications. <laughs> Patreon pontifications. You support us. We read your tweets. All right. Please consider donating to our Patreon. Money goes to paying for our equipment and podcast hosting fees, as well as paying producer Nick a just wage for all the work he does. Any money collected that goes beyond that will be donated to the Missionaries of Charity. Go to patreon.com slash clerically speaking to have a chance at having your chosen tweet talked about on the podcast. And as we've been saying, for anyone who signs up for our Patreon by the end of May, 
will be receiving a Clerically Speaking sticker in Thanksgiving for your support of this podcast. So uh, look for those sometime in June. So this week's tweet comes from Father Anthony. <laughs> I just coughed into the mic. That was terrible. Yeah. It comes from Sanctum Officium mm-hmm. at Black Guelph. I don't know how to say your Twitter handle because it's ridiculous. And he says, the Ruthenians got to me. I'm joining the Pews are Modernism gang now. What's a Ruthenian? So I understand, I understand half of that tweet. What's a Ruthenian? A Ruthenian is someone from the land of Ruthenia. Sure. All right, we had to look this up, folks, because we actually had no idea what a Ruthenian was. Yeah, this was like this was too deep into Catholic lore for us. Yeah, it's uh, it's a subset set of the uh, Latvians or Lithuanians, I should say. Sorry, and it's a Slavic uh, subsect essentially, and so, so which means they, they're Eastern Christians. Eastern Christians, which, which means, means they don't, I don't have, have pews. pews. So and yeah, yeah. So yeah, the whole pews are modernism. Like really, Catholic churches didn't really have pews into the whole protestant reformation and the reason why you put seats in the church is because you were just there to listen mostly to a sermon yeah not to do an act of worship the mass is an act of worship so the idea of sitting down for this action is very silly mm-hmm. kneeling down maybe yes but like sitting down ridiculous so the idea that pews are modernism now don't feel bad if your church has pews mm-hmm. like uh, you know that's it's fine but that's what he's kind of getting at. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, pews. Let's get rid of them. Let's go back to the old days. None of this modernism stuff, which and, I can appreciate. And if you ever go to an Eastern church, like I, uh, I think I think this happened here in our diocese. I'm trying to remember where it happened. But in our diocese, we, we have a couple uh, Ukrainian Catholic churches here. And one of them, I was talking to one of the parishioners, and they said, oh, no, it's been a battle for the last 20 years because uh, one of the older priests, he kind of Romanized our church. He put pews in it. He put stations of the cross in it. And I guess the new pastor finally kind of came and said, nope, get rid of the pews. Uh, now, not to say they don't have any pews. They have usually benches or whatever at the back or on the side for mothers with to nurse their children or for elderly parishioners who can't stand right. forever. Um, but he got rid of the pews, took down the stations of the cross, he says, we are an Eastern Catholic people, and these are our traditions, and not, we're not Roman Catholics. And, um, yeah, so it's just kind of interesting that those kind of debates around identity, even mm-hmm. with something as kind of something we never even think about, like pews. Yeah, and that's um, – the Eastern Catholics have suffered a lot in America yeah. because of the Romanization. Um, yes. So a lot – I mean, they've – and also just – I mean, there's actually a kind of a really embarrassing history – of the Roman uh, Western Church uh, imposing liturgy and imposing things on Eastern Catholics, which are our oldest brothers and sisters in the faith, mm-hmm. which we could get into for a whole other podcast. So a lot of times we'll, when you go into like a Byzantine, Maronite, whatever else church, you might see pews, but that's not something that's original to their liturgy. Yeah. Really, it's something re- pretty recent to our liturgy too. Only yeah. lasts like few, four, you know, 500 years. Here's so. another reason to get rid of pews. Okay. Then when someone comes in late for mass because they couldn't get their five kids out the door, they still got seats because there are no seats. Exactly, people can't people can't sit at the edge and refuse to move. They can't and be a wall. People of can't people be saying you. this is my pew. Now people might say this is my spot, but <laughs> which is, uh, which is probably going to happen. <laughs> but yeah, we get rid of all these stupid issues about welcomingness in a parish because of the pew stuff. It, it yeah. fixes it. Let's get rid of them. Burn the Let's pews. Burn, Burn the, the pews. pews. We're well, only half joking, guys. Don't worry. We're only half joking, yes. 
Well, uh, I have no transition, so presbyteral exhortations. <laughs> and now it is time for presbyteral exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good, quite good. Indubitably. Mm-hmm. Oh, I bet they can't wait to learn. They're going to learn so much. It's my favorite part. Oh, it's oh, the best part. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, quite, yes, quite. quite. All right, so uh, have you ever read um, Dreyer's Benedict Option? I know of it. I have never read it. Blessed are you. No. Uh, I, it, it, so I will just say this quickly, folks. The reason I don't really like Dreyer is he's got a very— he doesn't actually understand the charism and mission of Benedictine monasticism. Mm-hmm. Um, Benedictine monasticism has a very important role to play for Western society in general. And I kind of encountered a speech kind of haphazardly one day. I was kind of browsing through Twitter and I saw this article by Remy Bragg, who's a, who's a Catholic philosopher. And he was talking about this speech that Pope Benedict gave in 2008 to the representatives of culture from France. And it was a speech to all these like highfalutin people of society on monks. And so I looked up this speech and I read it. And it is one of it's like Regensburg level. Of when you of say Benedict. Regensburg, what what the, what is even that level mean? Regensburg. Regensburg level. was his famous speech where he talks about truth, reason, the university, the mission of theology within the university, and how religion needs to be purified always by reason, and reason be purified by faith. And in the context of that speech, he is talking about. Uh, a dialogue between a, the Byzantine emperor and, mm-hmm. and, a, and, a, and a Muslim. And he talks about the violence that is inherent in Muslim from, or Islam from this, from the Byzantine perspective, at least. Okay. And everyone hated it, but uh, <laughs> at least in the Muslim world, they were burning effigies of Pope Benedict. But in, in the end, actually, um, it's been quite a well-received talk in Catholic circles and intellectual circles is something people are constantly going back to. This Mm. has not been gone back to as much. And I'm really surprised because it was this, he's saying a lot here that we need to hear. So I kind of wanted to just kind of go through that speech a bit and maybe have a bit, few points of dialogue. Um, Heck yeah. Now I'm going to do my best because I showed father Anthony earlier. It was like a 12 minute speech or something, probably maybe, or maybe a bit longer, maybe 25 minutes. I've got 14 pages of notes in front of me, folks. (laughs) Strap yourselves in. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. You're going to learn about Ratzinger and you're going to like it. You're going to like the Ratzinger, dang it. We, we're going to get more Ratzinger. Like it, uh, the Simpsons episode where uh, Bart is running for a class president. And he's like, Martin says we should have less asbestos in the school. But I say more asbestos. More asbestos. More asbestos. More asbestos. <laughs> <laughs> more rats here more rats here <laughs> so so benedict's speeches he's asking does monasticism still have something to say to us today now he's not trying to be nostalgic or anything but he's trying to get because he sees in monasticism the, actually a root of of the character and meaning of what it means to be a western people The question is really getting at the heart of what does it mean to be a European people? Like it's a question he's always asked himself. And the speech really tries to engage with the idea of of the relationship between faith and culture. Um, So he's not asking in a nostalgic sense, but he's saying, is there something enduring here? 
Like, so like, let's not be nostalgic. Like, let's not try to be like the fifth century. We can't do that. He, he's very practical. He's very much like more like there's something eter- of eternal value here that may be worth penetrating for us to investigate, which is always an issue. Like, I don't know about you, but I, I find this is an issue often that people look to the past in a sense of nostalgia and just hope we can travel back 50 or 60 years and everything could be like it was. Right. Yeah. Do you find that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a, a large temptation in any community, mm-hmm. but uh, definitely in the church as well. Uh, instead of seeing what are the eternal things that have brought us to where we are and that are good mm-hmm. and that we can kind of maybe reclaim in a sense in the past, it's uh, if we ju- a kind of reductionist, if we just went to the past, if we mm. just had Christendom back, if we just had knights and 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 stuff and things. Also, we need to watch out because of the rise of uh, white nationalism and yeah. uh, white supremacy, who often equate the West with the rise of whiteness, which is utterly unchristian, yeah. and it's missing what made the West great, which was Christianity, right. not this other stuff. Yeah. So actually, that's that's a great answer because I got a good segue into this in my notes. So um, Benedict says this. He says, The monasteries were the places where the treasures of ancient culture slowly took shape out of the old. But how did it happen? What motivated men to come together in these places? What did they want? How did they live? And before answering that question, Benedict delivers, in my opinion, one of the most astute observations I've encountered in some time. With one phrase, he's he systematically destroys so many historical perceptions, cultural and cultural opinions of many Christians. And he says this, first and foremost, it must be frankly admitted straight away that it was not the monk's intention to create a culture, nor even to preserve a culture from the past. That's huge. Yeah. What's he saying? Yeah. So when we think of uh, monks, especially when we look at history, we think of them as these kind of lifeboats on the sea of chaos mm-hmm. after the fall of the Roman Empire. Because we know what the monks did. They they formed these little communities. They um, grew in their understanding of technology and farming and things out of like necessity. Um, they recopied manuscripts. So any like ancient texts we have, Roman texts we have, uh, those come from or because monks kept transcribing them and building these libraries. And so we see that effect of the monastic communities and we think, oh, that's why they did it. They saw the world crumbling around them. So they went to form these little lifeboats to keep culture afloat. But Benedict's saying that wasn't their intention at all. No, And it's not to say that they didn't do this. Right, but but he also I think what he'll go. I mean, I'm not gonna be able to go through the whole speech today. Um, but what he goes through in this is he's saying that they become a lifeboat, but they take these things of the past, but they make them something in, distinctively useful to the Christian. Um, and he's like, you see, like too often when we're looking towards the past, um, we see it under the lens of men, like you said, men trying to save the West, and it's because we've confused. Christianity and Western culture too much. They come together, they're in play together, but there's actually a real distinction there because Christianity is not the West, because Christianity exists in Africa, Christianity exists in China, Christianity exists in India, it exists in South America, etc. And these are not traditionally Western. No. So you cannot... It's actually one of the great um, secrets of Christianity is that it's actually incredibly acultural. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And that's what Benedict's saying. He's saying they didn't come together to create a culture. But they, but a culture came out of the seeds of what they did because of all the historical things that were kind of coming around them. Mm-hmm. He's saying something. So what he's saying, rather, is that these men did not gather to study Cicero or to preserve Plato. But they did. But that wasn't their main intention. He yeah. says their purpose was much more pure and simple. It's a Latin phrase. Quarere Deum. To seek God. That's why they came together. These monks, says Benedict, wanted something essential and enduring. The political, territorial, and economic landscape was incredibly unstable at this time. It was a world in constant flux. Uh, So these men gathered around what was perennial and enduring, the search for God. He can all, and because God is faithful, God is enduring, he can always be found. So the quadrate deum was the organizing principle of early monasticism. As Benedict says, they wanted to find the definitive behind the provisional. And this happened precisely through the provisional. So that was the whole meaning and purpose of, of early monasticism. It wasn't to create any of the other stuff that comes out of it, but it was just to seek God. But that the seeking of God was so, uh, it, it literally organizes the whole life of early monks, mm-hmm. right? So the seeking of God, uh, so he goes into a few things. Um, I'm really kind of going through this fast, but um, one of them is the how to look at scripture. So they would maintain stuff like Cicero because he would teach them about rhetoric, which would teach them how to understand the human words that are at play in scripture. Yeah. Right? which is really cool. But it was a service to the word to help them seek God and to find him. The scriptures were then used in the prayer of the monasteries. And in, and and so litur- and so the whole life of liturgy was their organizing principle because how do you encounter God? Well, it's through the things he's given us, which is the liturgy. Therefore, uh, they organized their whole day around that. We have a Benedictine monas- uh, monastery here in BC and their barn faces east. The barn the barn faces east. For Why does the barn face east? Well, because that's where the sun rises. That's the orientation towards the resurrection. Mm-hmm. So they do this to because they're saying our whole life is organized around this one principle to seek God. Yeah. I I want I'm gonna just give another quick summary. There's more to say. Uh, I'm gonna have to actually probably stop it there after the summary so you can say some stuff too. But um, the whole point of Benedict's talk is essentially this. This was the organizing principle behind monasticism. Now, what happens with monasticism is uh, eventually, because these are the places of stability, people start building around the monasteries. So villages start popping up because this is the safe place. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be. You know, the political dynamisms of the time. They're not. They're not bound by those things, and so on and so forth. And so, what happens then? But then these people start going to the monasteries for for mass and for liturgy, and the people's lives become oriented around this as well. And they learn from the monks. And the monks' teaching seeps into the culture of the people below. And suddenly, what the monks just came to do, which was seek God, suddenly actually takes on a culture. Yeah. And that actually becomes the roots of what we would call now moder- the modern West. Mm-hmm. And so Benedict's whole point was this. And this is, he says, this is the enduring thing it teaches us. That the heart of being a Western person is the seeking of God. And unless we re- rediscover that seeking and that orientation we will not have our culture because this is actually what it means to be a Western man now. Yeah. Thoughts? Yeah. So I'm thinking about that idea of what the monks set out to do when they became monks was to seek God. And you see all of the fruitfulness 
mm-hmm. when you live a rightly ordered life, mm-hmm. when you put God first and like that's your sole concern and your driving concern, look at all this extra fruit that pops up. And I'm thinking about what's happening in a particular way in North America about how a lot of our parishes are collapsing mm-hmm. and we're losing Catholics. And I think because we lost that principle of seeking God first, we went for the trappings of the culture and all this extra stuff that we celebrated and put God second. And it's precisely once we celebrate all these extra fruits of the West and not God that we lose both. Yeah. And how essential it is to have God be first in one's life. And you just see in an incredible practical way, like look at all the good that happened. Mm-hmm. And so, so often the reason why we don't seek God first is because we're afraid of these other things. We're afraid if we seek God first, we won't flourish, uh, if, you know, as a family as uh, or with finances or whatever else. I'm not saying, I'm not talking about prosperity gospel mm-hmm. stuff, but we're so concerned of these important things, but things that are secondary to God that when we don't choose God, we end up losing both as a culture. Yeah. So I'll conclude it with this last quote from his speech here. It's a long quote. So if if you're looking for this talk, just Google um, Pope Benedict France 2008 culture. It'll be the first link that pops up. So he says this, Our present situation differs in many respects from the one Paul encountered in Athens, yet despite the difference, the two situations have much in common. Our cities are no longer filled with altars and with images of multiple deities. God has become for many the great unknown. But just as in the past, when behind the many images of God, the question concerning the unknown God was hidden and present, so too the present absent absence of God is silently besieged by the question concerning him. Quarere Deum, to seek God and to let oneself be found by him. That is today no less necessary than in former times. A purely positivistic culture, which tried to drive the question concerning God into the subjective realm as being unscientific, would be, capitu- would be the capitulation of reason, the renunciation of its highest possibilities, and hence a disaster for humanity with very grave consequences. What gave Europe's culture its foundation, the search for God and the readiness to listen to him, remains today the basis of any genuine culture. That cult, does. then culture. Cult, cult then and culture. culture. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. This is Joseph Pieper. Da, 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 yep. da, da. Um, and, and exactly. Oh, yeah. It's just there's so much to say here. It's I could. Oh, I want to say so much right now. Um, but maybe <laughs> it, this is the whole point is to seek God. Mm-hmm. And like you said, we have to order our life around that and to make choices around that and to make that our our first choice because God will not be found if we don't make him the first choice because then we're actually not living the seeking and it doesn't inflame the heart. And so Benedict is saying, this is actually the heart of what it means to be human. This -hmm. is the heart of culture because culture is the expression of a lived humanity as a group, as a society. And this is what the church needs to be like in a way. In a way, we kind of need a new monasticism where we become that hidden place that's silently seeking God and that quietly draws people to itself to renew the church. And I'm being more and more, it's not going to, I think 
we have to stop with all the programs and everything and just say, no, no, no. We need to kind of start afresh by seeking God again. Mm. Father Harrison, I would love for you to go on more about this, but if I don't open the doors to this building that I have to go to, um, Patrick Nevy from The Crunch will be very upset with me because he'll have to do Bible study outside. So we need to wrap up the podcast. Fine. I know, I know. The responsibilities well, of the parish. Tommy was too busy seeking God to mm. be with us today, which is a good Beautiful. thing. He made the yep. first choice for God. So we'll have you on next week's Tommy. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you for li- listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. You can find me at Fr Harrison. You can find me at Father Sharapa. Contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. God bless. Peace.